Yeah, it's only 9.30 at night. If you told me it was midnight, I'd believe you. If you told me it was midnight, I'd believe you. Spent the last couple of nights reading about true crime, staying up way too late, reading about true crime, and you know, I lost interest in that many years ago now. Maybe not many, but probably in the last four or five years, it just really dropped off after years of being into it. I don't consider the mafia stuff true crime. Mafia stuff to me is more like anthropology with a little bit of crime thrown in. It's a totally different thing. It's very rarely pathological and doesn't feel dark. Even when it deals with murder and things like that, it just doesn't have that same feeling to it. But uh, true crime to me is, yeah, like serial killers, cold cases, all that stuff. What got me reading about it again just in the last couple days is uh, just checking to see if anything new would come out about Joseph D'Angelo, because that was really the last thing I was interested in before he got caught, and I lost interest before he got caught, and so it was just, it was strange when all that finally happened, but what gets me about it too is just, as it's become, I mean, it's always been a popular subject, it's always been a source for a lot of books, documentaries, movies, something people have always been interested in. But as this sort of new wave of true crime interest rose up in the last few years, it's just interesting to see what it does to people's brains. And you know what, like speaking of what it does to people's brains, I mean, even just going for a walk right now after reading about that stuff, I'm just like looking around and I'm like, no wonder it feels like midnight. Normally I have no, <laughs> normally, I, you know, the night feels very comfortable to me. You know, I don't go into the woods or anything at night, but normally walking around at night feels very comfortable and normal and free. But it's funny, just reading about darkness, reading about what lurks I'm like walking around right now like I feel like I'm a little kid again I feel like I'm a little kid when I used to be just terrified of what lurked out there but when you get older and you become a man you know it's not like you're invincible but it's like if you're an able-bodied man and you have the right mind you realize, like, oh, I'm the thing that people are afraid of. Not, not a, not a fiend, but like, I realized that about walking in the woods when I used to spend a lot more time in the woods, realizing, oh, you know what? Anybody who sees me in the woods is going to be far more worried about me than I am of them. Unless that person is some sort of unhinged predator with a weapon. There's a good chance that whoever sees me in the woods is going to be far more scared of me than I am of them. And, uh, but, you know, even then, it's like when you read about that stuff and then you go out for a walk, you're just like, oh yeah, that patch of woods over there. That's just like that patch of woods I read about. Because I was reading about the, uh, 
the Delphi murders, Delphi murders, I don't know how they pronounce it there. I say Delphi, you say Delphi, but it was where those two young teenage girls were some park in Indiana, rural Indiana, where it's an abandoned railroad bridge, and they built a park around it, and the girls were there, like, posting on Snapchat and hanging out, and then they disappeared, and the next day they found their bodies murdered off in the woods nearby, and uh, they retrieved the girl's phone, and there was footage on her phone of them, probably, probably within minutes of them getting killed, and they'd been just hanging out doing what teenage girls in 2017 would do, which is just like, yeah, taking Snapchat photos, taking video. But then right before the murder, they filmed a guy approaching them on the railroad tracks. It looks like an older guy, but it's hard to tell, just walking very slowly, kind of with his head down. Clearly, they were taking video of him because he made them uncomfortable or there was some something was maybe just intuitively or the fact that they're alone on this remote railroad bridge and just a lone man is walking toward them who knows but they released like a, a little clip of that law enforcement released a little clip of that because he's almost certainly the murderer and then they released a clip of, of audio from the video, which you don't, see, you can't see. They didn't release the full video, but they released an audio clip that's obviously taken from either the same video or a video moments later, where the guy says, "Like guys, go down the hill." So he's obviously giving them some kind of command, "Go down the hill." And their bodies were found down the hill. And they still haven't caught him, so it's been it's been one of those cold cases that people get obsessed with. Like I know the people who were obsessed with the Joseph D'Angelo case before he got caught, the original Night Stalker case. I know that a lot of those people kind of transferred over. They transferred their interest over to other cold cases, and this this one's obviously intriguing. And I think what makes it so intriguing is not just the fact that these kids got killed and it's unsolved it's also that this footage exists i mean it's it's really fucking eerie it is really fucking eerie like the footage of the guy walking on the railroad tracks toward them i'm just like oh my god because that's the thing i've talked about this before a couple months ago i talked about this like when people imagine these crimes they don't really visualize the reality of it they don't visualize the immediacy of it in the same way that, you know, I was talking about Russia and Ukraine and how, like, people visualize it as this movie. They visualize the conflict almost in this Star Wars, Marvel universe. People also view murder and even just fighting and things like that. It's not even just true crime, but, you know, they, they view violence sort of in these cinematic terms. They imagine choreographed cinematic movements and I you know and I say that because I do it too I have a tendency to do it too it's not like I know better it's not like I've witnessed a ton of violence in real life so it's it, it was a, it's a lesson for me as well because I have a tendency to assume like for example like 
I, I meant when, when this came up a couple months ago, I mentioned how there was some door camera footage. There was a woman who was kid attacked and kidnapped somewhere, and her door cam caught footage of her like walking up and unlocking her door, and then a guy just comes running out of the darkness, and he just tackles her and just starts wailing on her and just drags her away. And it's fucking awful. But it's like what's what stands out about it is how fast and chaotic it is. Like if you were just to read about that, if you were just to read about that example right there of the woman getting kidnapped from her porch, and you're just say, oh, a guy like came out of the darkness and beat her up and hauled her away. You're almost going to imagine his movements very slowly and, you know, like, like he's this slow-moving predator who's almost the way a movie would film it. Like his posture and his movements, you're going to imagine that it's... Uh, I'm trying to think of the word. I guess just, you can imagine it much more slow-moving and choreographed, almost. Like he's trying to look like a slow-moving, evil creature coming out of the darkness, when the reality is he just shoots out of the darkness. He comes running full speed. It's... what they would refer to as a blitz attack. It's a total blitz. And there's nothing smooth about it. It's just chaos. And seeing the footage really shows you the reality of that. Because your imagination is going to see something else. Your imagination is going to see something that's like some... It's, it's going to be dramatic. Whereas this is dramatic in its own way, just simply because of what's taking place in this footage. But it's not dramatic in a movie sense. And that's how fights are, too. Like, if you watch actual footage of, of fights, random bar fights and things, like, you don't even realize when a hit has been landed. You know, it's all so subtle. It's all, there's so much movement. There's so much flailing. It's not like, like when you hear that two people got in a fight, it's like, oh, they're like boxers squaring each other up. Maybe sometimes, if, they, if, they're, if they're actual trained fighters, maybe that's what you're going to see. But in most cases, most fights, they're not trained fighters. It's very haphazard. And you know, going back to Joseph D'Angelo, the East Area Rapist, original Night Stalker, when I used to read about that case before he got caught... I used to imagine like the way that he would stalk the night and attack his victims and break into houses and climb over fences and I always imagined it very dramatic. I always imagined it like a movie scene where he's moving around slowly, where he's playing this role. And I don't doubt that there was a little bit of that because I do think, I think these guys do like to do that when possible, but it's rarely possible. When someone's committing an actual attack. And, you know, when you see footage of Joseph D'Angelo in court, you can't really visualize it because he's old. He's generally confined to a wheelchair or he's sitting down. But they released footage of him in his cell. 
And what's interesting about that is his during his crimes, one of his signatures, you could say, or part of his MO, it might have been practical, but there's reason to think it was also some sort of preoccupation he had where at his crimes he would often put a blanket or a towel or a piece of, a piece of clothing over a, a TV that had been turned on or he would put it over a light just if there was some sort he would he would have some source of light turned on in the room but he would drape cloth or a blanket over it so the idea is basically creating ambient lighting and that was that was something i knew about the case like anybody who followed that case knew that that was something he did because he did it a lot. But after he got arrested, they filmed him in his cell and this footage is available online. When he would get to his cell, whenever they would put him in a new cell, he would drop the the act that he was a feeble old man who could barely move and he would take either a blanket or like looks like strips, maybe paper towels or something. And he'd climb up on his bunk and then climb up onto the sink and very meticulously and obsessively he would cover the light in his prison cell. And seeing that, it's crazy because it's like, that's him. That's, that's him doing what he always did at crime scenes. That seems to be... And they, they also, when they arrested him, they also discovered this isn't something he's just doing performatively. Like, he, he might know that he's being filmed in his cell, and you could say, oh, well, he's doing that on purpose. But they found, too, when they arrested him, they went into his house, and they found that his computer screen had a towel over it. So this seems to be something he does, you know, even in his downtime, even on his own. He, he drapes uh, cloth over lights. But what got me about it, like going back to the whole cinematic versus reality thing is he like watching him climb up on his sink and it was amazing how well he can climb considering he is an old man who was pretending to be frail when he gets in his cell by himself he very he's very focused and you know there's definitely he definitely seems obsessive compulsive like the way he like he takes a t like a paper towel and he puts it on the ground and then he very deliberately like takes his foot and in a very stiff way, runs the paper towel around the edge of the cell and around the floor. I'm guessing he's cleaning it. But it's not the way you would expect. Like, even if even if the cell is dirty or he's a clean freak, it's not really the way that I feel like you or I would clean the floor of our cell. It does come across almost ritualistic or something, and I don't think I'm just reading into it. Because, I mean, that's something that came out of his crimes, too, is that he, he was... He had a highly specific way of doing things, as many of them do, but I think he took it to a whole new level. But just seeing his behavior in his cell tells you that, oh, yeah, you know, regardless of whether he's stalking the night and attacking people, he seems very meticulous, ritualistic about how he does things. But seeing him climb, that's what I'm getting at here, is like seeing, seeing him climb up on his bunk climb up onto the sink first of all like as an old man he you know he does it so well like he can pull his body weight up very easily but it's like seeing the physicality of him and even though you're seeing him now as an old man 
you know, relating that back to what he was doing 40 year, years ago, 50 years ago, you're like, huh. You know, seeing the reality of his physical presence and that it's it's very deliberate. Like his movements are very deliberate. Like he knows what he's doing. He knows what he wants to do. He has a goal. But it's not a movie. It's not it's it's not a you know, it's not cinematic. And so relating that back to this footage that this girl took of this guy apparently following them or approaching them on this railroad bridge it takes on an almost cinematic quality and it's only like a two second snippet but you also see the reality of a guy just kind of slowly walking he's just he's walking like a normal person and there is something very suspicious looking about him but i think that's one of the reasons why people are drawn to this case is just because it's like oh wow that is footage of the guy in the moments leading up to something terrible. But I'm sure it was a lot more, I'm sure the whole process was a lot less um, theatric than you would imagine. Like him ordering them to go down the hill. You know, we don't know what all is in that footage. And we don't know all, exactly how it, it went from that moment to him killing them. But it very well might have been a lot more chaotic. You know, because I know they found a shoe in the creek and one of them had been, one of the girls had been partially disrobed. And sometimes, it, you know, it's easy to imagine that that's all by design. But then you think, like, this all took place in probably 20 minutes. Maybe. Who knows how quickly it happened? It took place, you know, definitely less than an hour I would say and you know we have this idea that it's always by design and a lot of it is but when you think about these blitz attacks and you know the suddenness with which this stuff happens it's pure chaos but going back to you know thinking about like this new wave of true crime interest which is definitely a different audience of people. You know, I've, I've always had women friends and girlfriends who are interested in that stuff. It's actually how I've connected with a lot of women over the years. Not, con not, not That wasn't the reason for our becoming friends, but it was kind of an icebreaker. Like, they would bring up serial killers. Like, I still think about someone who's my really good friend for years. And I knew we were going to be friends because many years ago, probably close to a decade ago, she started talking about Dahmer, and we were, we were having drinks, and she brought up Dahmer, and, you know, like, what, what serial killer are you most interested in? And I was like, we can be friends. There's a lot to talk about here. But uh, what's interesting about it, though, is this new wave of true crime interest. It It's like the new wave of British heavy metal. New wave of true crime interest. But it's, it's been very feminine. You know, a lot of the... There's this huge following huge numbers of women and I don't think that itself is new I think that it's a new generation though because I think about my mom and uh, you know she was such a sweet positive person but one of her favorite things to do was to have like cold case file tv shows you know she was the tv generation so she didn't get online and research this stuff 
But when I was a little kid, she would mention like Ted Bundy and because she was living here, you know, she was living in Seattle when that was going on. And there's a lot of lore around that. Like if you grew up in the Seattle area when I grew up and everybody's mom was of a certain generation, there's a lot of Ted Bundy lore, which is like, oh, my friend's sister's aunt almost got, you know, picked up by Ted Bundy. Oh, a guy pulled over to the side of the road and asked them if they wanted a ride. And, you know, we think it was Ted Bundy. Was in my mind, reading about this stuff, I'm so paranoid. There's like a, a dude parallel parking right next to me. And I'm just like, right now, and I'm just like, oh. Oh, my God, who is he? But, you know, the Ted Bundy lore, it was always funny because it was, seemed like everybody had a, had a Ted Bundy story. And you know what? The thing is. He was so prolific. I'm sure some of that might well have happened. You know, some of that might well have been true. But everybody seemed to have a story. So I heard about that stuff growing up, and I always knew middle-aged women, older women, housewives were interested in true crime. So I don't think that's a new development at all. But the era of podcasts, the era of social media, Facebook groups. I think that's all kind of created this new generation and and it's kind of brought older generations in. And I would say as someone who's always had friends who are interested in that, as someone who's always had male friends who are interested in true crime and serial killers, most of my male friends are only marginally interested in it at this point. I think they're kind of like me, where they read about that stuff a lot early on in their lives, and then they kind of burned themselves out, and were just like, you know what? There's nothing else to really get out of this stuff. This becomes very indulgent, and I don't think I'm really learning anything new. I think I, I think the, the mystery is still there as to what makes these people. And I've learned everything that I'm going to learn about their psychology, and who they are and what they do so why keep digging into this why just revisit it that's kind of how i ended up feeling and i feel like that's true for some of my friends but a whole new generation of women though they really got into the sleuthing side of it because there's a language to the way people talk about it you know we've all seen documentaries and we've heard law enforcement talk about it and what i noticed with the new generations of fans they all talk like they're detectives they all, they've kind of picked up on the lingo and the phrasing that, you know, experts and detectives use, and they theorize from that point of view. And I think what's influenced that, too, are examples like the original Night Stalker, where this huge community of people online developed who are trying to crack the case. Everybody wants to be Nancy Drew, where it's like, oh, this case hasn't been solved for 30 or 40 years. I'm going to find that one little piece of evidence to solve it. Now, well, well, there are people who have a personal interest in that. Like, there are people... I know at the original Night Stalker, there were people who lived in those areas when he was active. And as a result, they kind of maintained this interest in it and wanted to solve it. They were part of those communities. But, you know, there's even total strangers who are just like, you know, I want to help... There's a lot of people too who it's it's a form of role playing where like they get to feel like they're helping, but beyond actually helping, they get to feel like a little junior detective. 
And I wouldn't, I don't, you know, that can, I think that can hurt. They're, they're very clear, measurable examples of where that can hurt. But I think overall it's harmless, depending on, you know, how someone approaches it. But where it can hurt is people will develop their own person of interest. For, for some reason, some, somehow, some way, someone will come across a person who they think could have been him. And they'll research that person and come up with this whole theory as to why they think this person committed the murder. And that gets especially dangerous when multiple people start believing that. And I saw that happen with the original Night Stalker, because I used to read some forums and discussion groups about that. And there was a guy, for example, that this, this entire group of people decided was him. He was a, a decorated Vietnam veteran, and he was still alive. Even as an old man, he was in good shape. And they came up with this whole conspiracy theory, because conspiracy thinking really lends itself to true crime buffs. People who have a deep interest in true crime really get into that sort of conspiracy theory mindset. And in the case of this guy, there was a guy, yeah, he was a decorated Vietnam veteran, you know, an upstanding member of his community. But for whatever reason, they decided that he was the culprit. It, you know, and that stuff, the way that usually goes, it's kind of like lying, where you initially say, oh, this isn't this person's interesting. Maybe he could have been him. And then the next time you visit it, you're like, you're a little more convinced. And I say that's like lying because when someone tells a lie, they know they're lying. In their mind, they know they're lying. But if they tell that lie a second time, they're a little more convinced of it because they have a memory of the lie. They're now building on that lie. And that's how people become convinced of their own lies. Like they tell a story once, and then the next time they tell it, they remember that story. And then from there, it's just, hey, they basically have formed a memory that didn't exist. It's the same thing for people theorizing about stuff, where people will come up with a theory as to how something took place, or they'll, with these true crime buffs, they'll come up with a, a person of interest. And the first time it's just very speculative, and they know they're speculating. The next time they revisit it, they're a little more convinced. Because like the, the idea isn't being formed in that moment anymore. Like The idea has already been formed. So the next time they think about it, it just reinforces that idea that's already been formed. And then they start coming up with all these really outlandish theories, and I've seen this take place. And it happened with this Vietnam veteran where it ended up being this total conspiracy theory where this significant number of people were convinced that he was the original Night Stalker. And their theory was that because he was a decorated war veteran, law enforcement and the government were protecting him because they didn't want a black eye on them. That, oh, one of our boys, one of, one of our celebrated heroes uh, committed these horrible crimes, so they covered it up. And then they start finding, they, they start find, finding heavily biased evidence for that. And it just spins out of control. And what was interesting with the Joseph D'Angelo thing, because 
for about a year or two, probably a couple years before he got caught, I had lost interest in true crime. I wasn't following that case. But when I found out he'd been caught, I was like, well, I gotta, I gotta go see what people are saying. And how quickly people went from like, okay, he's been caught. But these people who had developed like a, a person of interest or they had developed their own theory as to who he was or how he did what he did, how quickly they went from like, okay, he's been identified, but that's not the whole story. He also must have had an accomplice. This also must have happened. Clearly he had an accomplice. And so the cognitive dissonance over like their theory not being true turns into, hmm, well, yeah, I guess they caught him, but clearly he had an accomplice who was my guy. Clearly my guy hasn't been ruled out. He had an accomplice. And they start finding inconsistencies in the cases. I, I watched this happen in real time after he got caught. They start finding inconsistencies in the case. Not even inconsistencies, but like anything that's open for interpretation. And they bend that to fit their own narrative. And they become, what gets me about it is they become so convinced and they're so opinionated about it. To the point where they will condescend other people who disagree with them. And I call that changing the bracelet to fit the jewel. Like you thought you found a jewel and you became convinced that this jewel fits the bracelet. Maybe that jewel is, the, is close in color and shape to the jewels that are on the bracelet. But when you hold them up to the bracelet, they don't match. And if you think you found a jewel that fits the bracelet, it's disappointing when it doesn't. And so sometimes how people deal with that cognitive dissonance is they change... Oops, I don't know what that is. I think... Um, everything seems like a... Everything seems like an object of evidence or something. I'm like, what is that? What did I just kick? Who discarded that? But people start uh, changing the bracelet to fit the jewel to get around that cognitive dissonance of their idea not working out. I've seen people do this with all kinds of stuff. It's not just true crime. They do it with all kinds of stuff. Like anytime they have an idea about something that they greatly value, when they think they've found the ultimate jewel, and then it turns out the jewel, it might be a jewel, but it doesn't fit the bracelet. It doesn't match the other jewels on the bracelet. And so they'll take a hammer to the bracelet, and then they end up being more wrong than they even were in the first place. Like you could just accept that you were wrong in the first place and be like, oh, I don't have to throw away that jewel, but it doesn't, that jewel doesn't fit this bracelet. But there's a lot of people where they try to get around that by being like, well, you know what? I'm going to modify the bracelet. I'm going to take a hammer to the bracelet. And then you end up being way more wrong than you were to begin with. You see people do this often. But yeah, what gets me is just how they personalize it. They, they develop this, their own opinion. And, uh, and those are some of the more unhinged people. There's a lot of people who don't take it that far, but there, there, are, there are people though who, like I was saying, like they kind of like to role play that they're like a little Nancy Drew. But it's all based on these like TV interpretations. Like in the same way that when people think about the crime being committed, they almost imagine the movements and behavior were uh, slow moving and dramatic and cinematic. 
They also tend to take on like the language and phrasing of TV detectives, TV investigators, and sort of a Psych 101 understanding of the human mind. Like you see, you'll see this a lot. Like, oh, he must have attacked that woman because she reminded him of his mother. Like you'll see people say that. <laughs> you know, you'll see you'll see people go to the most obvious Psych 101 analysis of like why a guy did something, and it's embarrassing to see, and it's popular. And they'll also see things that aren't there at all. They'll see what they want to see. And this is why you can't trust the human mind, you know, because people will see what they want to see. And a good example of that is when Joseph D'Angelo was caught. You know, it's, it's long been rumored but never confirmed that he attended one of the community meetings that law enforcement put on to warn people about him. Like, when he was doing all of his attacks in Sacramento, they had these community meetings where they told people how to protect themselves and what to look for just to keep the community informed. And they had these big, like, tons of people would go. They'd fill, they'd fill up, like, a, a school gymnasium, and they'd have cops and, and detectives kind of break things down for them. And it's long been theorized that he attended at least one of those, which, you know, seems possible. He was a cop. He lived in the area. He could easily have gone and blended in. And the reason people believe that is because there was a guy allegedly at one of those meetings who stood up and said, well, he wouldn't attack a, a, any house where a guy is living. Like he wouldn't attack a, a woman whose husband lives there, something to that effect. And then that guy got, got attacked sometime later. Like after that guy made that statement, his wife got attacked and he got tied up. So people have theorized that that wasn't coincidental. That the perpetrator, that Joseph D'Angelo, knew that guy had spoken up and said, like, well, he's not going to mess with us because I'll be there. And so he did that to kind of humiliate him and prove him wrong. Very possible. Very possible. We know that he kept tabs on people. But that's led people to believe that he was there and he might have been. But as a result, like photographs have surfaced from these community meetings that show everybody in, in attendance, just like an auditorium full of people. And years ago, before he was identified, people would go through those community photos face by face, and they would pretty much theorize that every single guy there was him. They'd be like, oh, uh, look at this guy. Look at the way this guy's sitting. Yeah, look at the, look at this guy's face. Look at the look at the expression on this guy's face. Don't don't you think that's him? So people would see what they wanted to see. It's like a Rorschach test where they see this entire auditorium full of people, including men. And before he was identified, they would see what they want to see. Oh, look at this guy. Doesn't he kind of look like this police sketch that was released? And that led to people targeting individual like. That led to like some photos, like people would crop those photos and then start sharing those as if they were the killer. And then that continued right after he got arrested. Like after he got arrested, this photo made its rounds all over. It was being spread far and wide where a woman took a picture of a guy at one of those auditorium community meetings 
and then compared it to like a photo of Joseph D'Angelo when he was really young and was like, oh my God, I cannot, I cannot, is what she said. I'm screaming right now. And if you saw the comments, if you saw the response to that, it was like, it was just tons of confirmation bias. We're talking like hundreds and hundreds of people, you know, just, uh, you know, just total confirmation bias. Like, oh, it's him. You know, it must be him. Just totally convinced. Meanwhile, like if you actually look at it, you're like, that's not him at all. You know, that, that couldn't possibly be him. That guy's way older. His face, his facial structure is completely different. Like if you actually compare photos of him from the same period, they don't even look remotely alike. Like I'm not even talking about a little bit of a similarity. Like there's no similarity whatsoever. But the thing is, people want to believe. You know, it's like X Files or something where it's like they see that and they like they see the photos side by side and it's just like they really want to believe it and if someone wants to believe that they will even when the reality is you know there's no resemblance whatsoever and you can't convince somebody who's thinking that way cuz you know that thinking doesn't just apply to true crime sleuths that thinking applies to politics, it applies to everything down the board. Like, if somebody's decided to believe something, it is very difficult to shake that. But that's one that it bugs me personally. You know, I've talked on here a lot about... One reason that I know that some people fundamentally see the world different, different from me is when it comes to, like, noticing resemblance between people, I will say that... I, th I think I'm personally very good at recognizing whether people resemble each other or not. I'm pretty good at accurately, you know, recognizing a resemblance versus not. I notice some people see resemblances that are so far off. I'm just like, we are not living in the same reality. We are not seeing the world through the same eyes. If you think those two people look alike, we are not seeing the world through the same eyes. And that scares me. That actually scares the heck out of me. Because I'm like, if you see a resemblance, either your bias is so is warping your brain so severely that you're hallucinating, which I think people are. Or if you actually think that person looks like that other person... That scares me too, because it means your brain is so differently wired. Like, do you look at a red stoplight and think it's green? I'm barely exaggerating with that, you know? Like, I, I worry. <laughs> I worry. And it, you know, and, that explain, and it also explains so much about why we have such different interpretations. I mean, that's like looking at the same information or the same evidence and having the complete opposite conclusion, which some people do. That's always a weird thing. Like when you and somebody else can look at the exact same data, and I'm not saying I'm absolutely right, but just the fact that I can look at the same exact data as somebody else and draw the complete opposite conclusion from it. To me, that's kind of like when somebody says, oh, oh my God, look at the resemblance. It's totally him. And I look at it and I'm like, he couldn't look more different. As far as white men go, a white man could not look more different. And it's not just that that person thinks somebody looks alike. 
it's that they, they then become convinced and dogmatic. What I notice with, with this stuff is just how dogmatic people can become. But I don't know. I don't know if people are still as interested in true crime right now as they were a couple years ago. But uh, you know, because a lot of people, it's, it's a thrill for them. Like they act like, "Oh, I'm doing this because I want to spread awareness about crime, and I want to get these bastards caught." That's another thing you see too: is the posturing about like I, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago about you know when Joseph D'Angelo was sentenced, his niece who had lived with them when she was a kid, wrote like a, a very glowing letter about how good her uncle was to her when she was a kid. Maybe she's not telling the whole story. I don't who who knows. But uh, his children and his niece seem to have had a favorable opinion of him as a father and uncle. And the niece didn't apologize or anything in her letter. Because why would she? She didn't do anything wrong. Assuming she's telling the truth, and I have no reason to question her, she was just, she wrote, she was asked to write a letter to the court about her uncle, and she told told it like it is, I guess, how she saw it, but the response to that was like, that little fucking bitch, you know, people were so mad at her, because she didn't apologize for what he did, and because she just told the court about her experience with her uncle, based on her experience, like, they thought that she should... I don't know, vilify him or something, or or revise her own experience based on who he turned out to be. But it, another version of that is the way people discuss these guys. They, one, have a tendency to, to dismiss everything the guy actually says about himself. They're always like, oh, he's lying. Oh, this is just class. It's, once again, that Psych 101 thing, where they're like, oh, he, he's lying. This is what they do. He's manipulating everybody, which they do do. They do do that. But there's a tendency to think like, oh, he's just manipulating everybody. He's doing this for this reason. Psych 101. Or they like, they go out of their way to posture about like what they do to him. Like, oh, well, you know, this is a popular one, which is like, oh, you know what, where, where he's going, where he's going, his new neighbors in prison, they don't like ex-cop pedophiles. You know what they do to ex-cop pedophiles? You know, that's the kind of shit they end up saying to him. Or saying about him. Like, people need to... It's that moralizing. You know? Hey there. Hi. How's, Hi it, there. how's it going? talked about that guy before he's he creeps me out actually he's got something wrong with him he wears a he wears the same thing every day he's always carrying plastic grocery bags but I don't it doesn't seem like he got him from the store he's uh, he, he wears even in night like there was like a 90 degree day and he wears this big heavy jacket with the hood on He's wearing it today, it's still winter, but he wears it in 90 degree weather and I always see him walking at night. And he's definitely out of his mind, he's definitely far gone. I don't think he's homeless, he's just, but he, he must live around here somewhere. The other day I was on the phone with somebody and walked by him and he goes, hello Mars, hello Mars. 
called me Mars. And it'll just be gibberish like that. And he always says something. And I'll see him walking too when he's by himself and he doesn't see me. And he'll just be talking, just total gibberish. The only thing that he's ever done that really bothered me was I ran into him in the woods once quite a, a little ways away. And you know, Batty, if I'm walking Batty, he'll sometimes kind of snarl at people, sometimes not. Of course, he's going to snarl at that guy because he's fucking weird. But like, he, he like barked at Batty. He barked back at Batty, and I was like, don't fucking do that. Don't bark back at my dog. Like, I know you're insane. And that interaction I just recorded there was the most normal one I've ever had. But what wasn't normal about it is that, like, I'm on the right side of the sidewalk, and he was on the left side, and when he saw me, he very deliberately crossed over to my side so that we were going to run head into each other. And given all the shit I'm reading about, I'm like, that's not okay. So he very deliberately, like, got into my path. And he was making eye contact with me. But beyond that, beyond the fact that he did that, that like verbal interaction was the most normal one we've had. But yeah, he's, he's gone. He's, he's gone mentally. But anyway, going back to true crime talk. This is now a true crime podcast. I'm going to try to recruit female listeners who want to hear me talk about true crime. But, uh, like, the posturing where, like, people are like, well, you know what I would do to him? Uh, or, well, they like to say, like, well, you know, what's, you know what they're going to do to him in prison, right? His new neighbors in prison, you know, you know what they do to ex-cops and, and, and pedophiles, right? They get off on that idea of, like, what, what the, the folk punishment is going to be. You know, they, they get off on the idea that, like, oh, yeah, well, the, the fellow prisoners are going to, they're, they're going to punish him. And, like, they, they kind of get off on that fantasy. It's sort of like when it comes out that, like, somebody's a pedophile, there's a tendency for people to be like, well, you know what I would do to him? I would hang him upside down by his toes and uh, get out a pair of pliers. People, get, people start doing that. And it's this, it's this kind of posturing and this moralizing I've talked about that with just the editorialization of everything, where it's like now, even in the news, you'll come across, like, they they always make sure to tell you somebody's bad. Like, you can't just talk about somebody doing things that we all know are bad. You have to add in some twist that communicates, and just so you know, he's bad. Just so you know, I don't like him. Just so you know, I think that this should happen to him. You see that a lot with true crime, where it's like, I think talking about a guy being a predator and committing these crimes, I feel morally grounded enough that I can talk about that, and it should be evident that I think that's horrible, without needing to add in my two cents, without needing to add in some sort of like uh, revenge fantasy or anything like that. I mean, it's a version of, you know, what I've said before about, like, people who feel the need to be like, well, you know, Hitler's art sucked. He was a failed artist. You know, people who kind of need to volunteer that as part of the narrative. Like, I think what he did makes him bad enough, right? 
you know, you know, what Hitler did makes him bad enough. And I think simply describing what he did is the only argument you need, right? But there's a certain sort of person who's like, well, I heard he also had a small penis and he sucked at art. To the point where sometimes it's not even true. Now, obviously he didn't suck at art. But like to acknowledge that he was a talented artist somehow communicates to people that you support him. You know, like, that's how that's how we're wired. It's like, by just stating the fact that, oh, he did a whole bunch of horrible things that will forever define who he was on this earth. But if you simply acknowledge that his art wasn't bad, you're on his side. You either got to be all, all on one side or all on the other. This You have to do this moralizing, this editorialization, letting people know where you stand. And that came up, too, with the Joseph D'Angelo case, where after they arrested him, they, uh, they, they, record, like, they left him alone in a, the interrogation room, and he was recorded like talking to himself. And he was like, I did those things. I thought I pushed him out. I pushed him out. I've lived a happy life. I pushed Jerry out. But he, he's, he's part of me. He's, he's in my mind. Just sort of multiple personality, you know, it could have been total nonsense. I don't know. It could have been, it could have been, maybe he, you know, people were like, oh, well, he knew he was probably being recorded. And so he's just trying to like set up his insanity plea or he's trying to act like he was possessed or had multiple personality. I don't know. A lot of them think that a, a huge number of serial killers have all said, like even in the era before they really knew about each other, a lot of them have said they felt like they were possessed or had this other alter ego who took control of them and made them do it. Like a version of the devil made me do it idea. And that doesn't just, that didn't begin with serial killers. You see that with ideas like, uh, what is it, like the djinn? Djinn? The idea of an ancient demonic spirit possessing people to do things. You know, it's always been there. And so it's sort of a chicken and the egg argument where it's like, did these guys get that idea from somewhere? Because they'll bring it up even when they're not trying to use it for their defense. Like Ted Bundy said that there was something called the entity that would possess him and make him do things. Danny Rowling said it was Gemini. The BTK said it was Factor X. John Wayne Gacy said it was a guy named Jack. There's other ones, too. So, you know, you can say, like, oh, it's all just bullshit. They're inventing some backstory to make make themselves seem less responsible for their actions. You know, I don't think that's stupid to think that. But I think you can also just take a step back and be like, you know what, I'm not going to draw any conclusion from it. Maybe the sort of person who does that does have these weird compartmentalized personalities. Maybe it's not multiple personality disorder as we would normally define it, because these people don't really fit into any one box. And we still don't really know that much about them. Whereas, like, I look at it and I think, like, huh, you know, maybe that type of guy does have this weird system inside of them. 
and maybe they do feel like this other entity took control of them or influenced them. I can't completely discount that. It's, it's, that idea has been around a long time. I wouldn't rule anything out. It's kind of like finding out that all serial killers, basically every well-known serial killer, has a is like one of three astrological signs. I want to say they're air signs. I don't remember though. I never remember what the categories are. But finding out that like almost every single well-known serial killer, and I'm not just talking about a few. I'm talking. There's an entire list you can find online where almost all of them are like Libras, Gemini's, or uh, Sagittarius's. I think something like that. They're almost all like one of two or three astrological signs. I'm not going to say that's what... Obviously, there are plenty of people who have those signs who aren't bad people. I do think that's just an interesting little detail. Not that you can draw any conclusion from it, but I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand. Same thing for this whole idea that a lot of them come back to. I mean, Son of Sam kind of had that. He kind of... He said that... He seemed... He talked about this... His daddy, Sam, or whatever it was. And who knows if they actually believe that, but it's just interesting to me that so many of them say it. But when Joseph D'Angelo said it, people were just so dismissive of it. And it's just like, oh no, he's not smart enough to do that. Like, they think that by giving this guy any credit, or thinking that he's telling the truth at all, they're somehow playing his game... Or, or like celebrating what he did. Whereas my approach to that stuff is just like, huh, it's interesting that he's saying that given like a, so many of them have said similar things. I'm not going to draw a conclusion from that. Obviously that he was, a, he was a man and he's responsible for his actions. Kind of like it came out too that like when he was a little boy at a military-based warehouse... He witnessed like two airmen, two Air Force officers sexually assault his little sister, who was a little girl, and he had to watch it, apparently. His family came out and said that. And when that came out, people had this tendency to be like, oh, yeah, well, that's, that's not an excuse. Plenty of people go through things like that, and they don't become serial killers. And it's like, yeah, of course. Don't you think it's interesting? Don't you think it's interesting that this guy witnessed extreme trauma while he watched helplessly? Don't you think that's interesting that then he he went on to basically do the same thing to people? You know, you don't even have to go into some cycle of abuse thing. Like, don't you think that's at least interesting information? But people hear that and they're like, well, then someone's making excuses for him. No, I just think it's interesting data. To me, it's just pure data. Like, wow. You know, without actually talking to the guy, having him break down his life history, you're never going to know why he thinks he turned into what he turned into. But I think that if, if you're trying to understand who the guy is and why he may have done what he, he had done or why he was such a fucked up person, I don't think you can ignore that. It's not, it's not rationale. It doesn't justify anything. You learn a lot about people's psychology from how they respond to something like 
serial killers or true crime. And how imaginative people are too. Like the theories they have as to why things took place. Like they'll dismiss that. Like somebody will dismiss that and be like, well, that's no excuse. That doesn't explain anything. And then turn around and have some far-fetched theory about, oh, well, I think he actually had an accomplice who they haven't caught, who was a decorated war veteran that the CIA was protecting because they didn't want the U.S. military to get a black eye because things were already bad after Vietnam. Military already had a bad reputation after Vietnam. So, you know, people come up with that kind of insane theory while dismissing stuff that's a lot more relevant. But, you know, my philosophy more and more with anything, this applies to anything and everything, is just what's interesting and what's not. That's really all it comes down to. I mean, there's situations where you have an opinion or a moral stance, but your morality should be kind of built into you. You know, you should have a moral framework built into you that doesn't require you to moralize or respond emotionally to every single thing that, tr that triggers that. And I think that you become a more objective person when you think that way. I think you're less prone to error. I think you're less prone to make errors in judgment. But you realize people are just fueled by their emotions. And when someone moralizes, it's not really a moral stance at all. It's an emotional reaction. And a lot of emotional reactions, it turns out, aren't even what people are feeling deep down inside. They're what they want other people to perceive in them. And that sounds like some Psych 101 crap, but I think it's true. Like whenever I've heard, and I've heard this throughout my entire life, whenever I've heard someone, like, like the subject of a, a child molester comes up and someone's like, oh, just put me alone in a room with him. Give me just a nail file and some duct tape and put me alone in a room with him. Whenever I hear that, what I hear from them is, I'm not a pedophile. I'm just letting you know. I'm just letting you know that I'm not that. And I'm letting you know by telling you what I would do to that person if I was alone in a room with them. It's always funny to me. You know, so much of what people communicate, especially when they're moralizing, is I just want you to know that I'm not that thing. That goes for the whole racism discussion, too. You know, a lot of times when people are like, oh, God, I, you know, I hate racists. You know, they should do to racists, right? You know, a lot of times when people think that way, when they say things like that, they're just trying to let you know that they're not that, or they don't want you to think they're that. Whereas, you know, just the life you live should be evidence enough of that. The life you live should be the only argument you need. But why this stuff kind of freaks me out, like why, 
the way people respond to and and have different interpretation of, of, of in, different interpretations of things is they're not just doing this about weird little niche interests like true crime. They're doing this about everything. It's why when someone complains to you about somebody in their life or their boss, if you love that person, you should listen to them. Like if, if you've ever had a significant other who comes home from work and just brings work drama home with them and just talks about their boss and this coworker. Like, if you love that person and know they're a good person, obviously you support them and listen to them. But you also have to keep in mind, like, how are they misinterpreting the situation? Where is their bias in this? Like, somebody told me about a situation they were in where they got in trouble at work. I'm going to be purposely vague here. But someone I'm close to told me about a situation at work where they got in a lot of trouble. And it wasn't their fault at all. Somebody else caused the problem 100%. But they were telling me how they, they ended up getting punished for it. And I don't think they should have gotten punished the way they did. But then near the end of the conversation, they let slip that they said something that you really should never say. Even if you're not the one who started it. When they mentioned like what they said in response, I was like, oh... Well, that I'm still on your side, but you know that kind of changes the dynamic a little bit. You know, that kind of changes the story quite a bit. The fact that you said that or you did that. So that's that's the issue with people, though. It's, it's like they come up with their own theory, and especially if they're feeling attacked or challenged. And some people feel challenged all the time. Like some people are just waiting to feel the slightest bit of adversity or challenge. And when they do that, they come up with a whole theory for it. This is happening because of this. This is why this is happening. And uh, you can't trust that. People are all conspiracy theorists in the waiting. You realize that a lot of people have their own little conspiracy theories about their own lives. We tend to think a conspiracy theory is something that's like, oh, it's they're coming up with conspiracy theories about bigger issues and larger forces in the world. No, people are conspiracy theorists first and foremost about what's going on in their own lives. Unless they're truly content and happy, there's a decent chance that people you know have their own little conspiracy theories. And the more they repeat them, the more they believe them. And uh, I'm going to head home here because it's funny. I, I, I'm, I'm like looking over my shoulder way more than normal. It just shows you how much the things you consume color your view of the world. Like just a couple nights reading about true crime again. And I'm walking around like every single patch of trees. I'm just like, oh God, what's in there? What's in there? The streets are totally empty and I'm just like, who's, who's, who's out and about? It's funny how just reading about that really shapes the way you see the world. Which, what does that tell you about all the people who are addicted to true, true crime these days? 
What does that tell you about all the people who have gotten in, sucked into this new wave of true crime, who spend every night listening to true crime podcasts, reading true crime books? How does that color their view of the world? I don't think I want to know. I don't even want to know. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take-